So um, you're quite fortunate that tomorrow evening, Ruth is speaking. <laughs> because Ruth is going to speak about faith. So as you, as you bear with my talk this evening, <laughs> just keep your sights ahead <laughs> that faith is coming. And if this talk gets too heavy and, you know, if you take, take on the topic too heavily, then just look further ahead because then Philip's going to talk about gladdening and joy or just gladdening? Just gladdening. Just gladdening. Well, then you can look further ahead and then Nikki's going to talk about, is it, no? Oh, well, we'll see. Something's happening. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it's it gets better. It'll just get better after today. So just because today's topic is suffering, so you're gonna have to suffer through it the best you can. Because suffering is the first step in the list called the transcendent or dependent arising or liberative dependent arising. So I'm going to talk about. I mentioned this a little bit briefly in the opening evening for the March retreat, and I'll talk a little bit more about it today and, and the role of suffering. And in um, some ways, uh, Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism we practice, is characterized by a willingness to take an honest and good look at, suffer- at suffering, uh, willingness to witness it in our lives and the lives of others, and our society and our world. And to learn how to do that is a very important part of this training. So to begin this talk, I would like to uh, do a little thought exercise for you, reflection. And you might just, as you're sitting here, if you want to close your eyes. And um, there's two parts to it. So the first part is to see if you can remember some time, maybe in recent time, some time in your life, where you were particularly tired, hungry, hot maybe, impatient, or stressed. And you had very little access to wisdom. You know, you might be a very wise person, but that day, wisdom was not available. And then you encountered some really significant suffering, challenge. And when you have no wisdom available to you, what tends to be your gut response or your habitual response to encountering suffering? So there's just a question for you to reflect on. What is your response when there's no wisdom? Maybe you're so stressed that you don't even think before you speak or act. Okay, so hopefully it's gonna get better from here. So the second part of this is maybe take a deep breath and relax, let go of that little exercise. And now, maybe think back at a time where you were the opposite, that you were well-rested, well-fed, you had a lot of time, you felt no sense of stress, no impatience, no hurry to do something. Maybe you just sat and meditated for one to five weeks. (laughs) And, um, And whatever wisdom, all the wisdom that you've ever accumulated through your lifetime is quite available and accessible and applicable 
And when your wisdom is available and you encounter that same suffering, what, well, how might you respond then? How would you meet that suffering? What attitude would you have towards it? And then you might consider the, if there's a contrast between those two ways, with wisdom and without wisdom. Okay. That's the exercise. And what I hope that the exercise would do for enough of you that here, that uh, you would see that there was a difference between the two and how you'd respond. Um, one of the ways that I respond to suffering is uh, sometimes I do the ostrich approach to wisdom. You know, it's conflict, it's to kind of put my head in the sand and or I pull in and become very quiet. That's kind of my tendency. Some people will get angry. Some people will assign blame. Some people run away and some people go numb and some people get really afraid and run around in circles and there's all kinds of ways in which people might respond. Get distressed, be filled with fear. And uh, when I have uh, some wisdom available to me, then one of my responses to suffering is a willingness to stop for it and to give it time, to be present for it. So much so that uh, I say that the, if the bumper sticker for Buddhists should be, I stop for suffering. <laughs> and then someone made me the bumper sticker. So there's a difference between how we, there might be a difference how we respond to suffering depending on our state of mind and state of being. And, um, and the, how we respond differs depending on the conditions that we're in. And the, what I was trying to convey in this exercise is that uh, we can, sometimes there's two different routes we can take with the same event. It could be the same kind of suffering, but if we don't have wisdom, if we don't have compassion, if we don't have practice, mindfulness or something, um, you know, and we act out of old impulses of, it might actually make the whole situation worse for ourselves and for others. And there's a path that opens up. And sometimes it's a path that's self-perpetuating. We do some, we get angry at someone and blame somebody for something and, and then, well, that's uncomfortable for them and they have their, they have, don't have any wisdom, they have their favorite response to you and, you know, you might run into someone who has the same response as yours and so they get angry back and, and pretty soon it escalates and it gets worse and worse. So it's a condition, so responding out of a, a place of, of stress and exhaustion and tired and all that, lack of wisdom, it's a condition for a tra trajectory, a movement to develop in a certain direction. If you respond from a place of wisdom and subtleness and connectedness to yourself, um, then you might create, uh, you have a different condition which to encounter that situation. And that might open up a different trajectory, different path, different unfolding over time. It might mean that you run into some kind of very difficult suffering and a challenge in your life. And maybe rather than lashing out, you stop and, and um, and uh, breathe deeply and try to take a deeper look at yourself, deeper look at the situation, uh, perhaps call for some compassion. And so your response to the situation will look very differently. And if you are, in, if you are encountering other people, the consequence, the, uh, or the, 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 how that ripples out into the future has a certain kind of maybe a different pattern than the first there, because you maybe stop and think and think about compassion, maybe the person feels you're caring and compassion and, and rather than lashing out and being angry with you, maybe it elicits the same in them. And, and then who knows, maybe they go home to their family and are a little bit kinder to their kids. And the kids are a little bit kinder when they go to school. So 
you know, the, the, uh, there's a certain condition, our state, how we are, and depending on how that condition, we can have a different relationship to suffering, which then can lead to further and further consequences down the road. So the same thing is true internally for ourselves. How we encounter suffering uh, is consequential for the unfolding of our inner, inner life. And if we close down, if we resist, if we hate, if we have aversion, if we get angry, if we pretend it's not there, if we, um, you know, all kinds of ways that we can react that sets in motion a set of conditions which maybe is not really so healthy for us, to our best interest. And there are ways of encountering suffering which, um, where we have wisdom, we have compassion, we have mindfulness, um, and we encounter our suffering and we put in place a different path of growth and development that uh, leads to some, some other place than you know, the first one. And this is what the, this uh, liberative dependent arising list is about. It's about uh, what you can set in motion if you learn how to meet your suffering with wisdom, kindness, practice. That suffering is suffering, this is what it is, somehow. And, but how we respond to it, how we understand it, our attitude towards it makes all the difference in the world. And so a big part of what we're doing in Buddhist practice is uh, clarifying what is our relationship to suffering? What is our response to it inside of ourselves? And, and to, to uh, really understand well, understand what, is, what kind of response is not helpful for ourselves, not helpful to others. What kind of response is helpful to us and, not, and what is, uh, and maybe, and hopefully helpful for others as well. And that takes uh, a study, investigation, a mindfulness, being present for ourselves to really, we're the laboratory or the, we're the, you know, we're the research subject, subject to do this learning. And so we stop for suffering so we can really learn something important and very profound. And so rather than seeing suffering as a mistake, which is very easy to see, it's reasonable so many times to see that, or mistake, or shouldn't be there, or something. Um, but if we get caught up too much in this, this shouldn't be happening, or this is not fair, or, you know, I hate it, or, then that might not be the ideal condition to move in the direction of health, or move in the direction of freedom, to move to some wiser place. But if we stop and take a look and have an attitude, this is something I can learn from. This is something I can find a new way of being. This is a way I can learn to move towards freedom. This is an area where I can learn to move towards greater compassion. Then the suffering has a very different, is a condition that has a very different effect in our lives. So what relationship do you want to have to your suffering? What, what impact would you like your suffering to have? Suffering by itself, I propose, or I suggest, at least for the purposes of this talk, is that this, whatever the suffering is, um, is one thing. But to really, the, the, how you relate to it is a huge thing. How you interact with it, how you pick it up, and so to study, find out what is going on for you. So um, uh, the teaching so far in this retreat on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is very much, a, uh, can be seen as a perspectives that you can bring to the world of our suffering, to our stress, to the tensions we carry with us, to the distress, to the sorrow, sadness, to all the different things that can be characterized by this word suffering. In Pali, it's dukkha. Some people prefer not to translate it as suffering. And another translation is unsatisfactoriness. And uh, another is uh, stress. Uh, the, um, 
I studied with a Zen master named Robert Aitken, and he translated it as anguish. So there's many different choices. I've seen misery translated. And um, so there's many different, many different words. But in some ways, maybe they're all appropriate in some circumstances. But um, um, I, I kind of like the, the word uh, translation suffering for dukkha because first of all, it's, it's, uh, for me, it's the word suffering is, 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 I don't know, consequential. It's like, this is something we want to, this is important. Suffering is important. And uh, we, we want to be respectful of it. We want to care for it. We want to be compassionate to it. Suffering is something that, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it really warrants our deep care and respect and give it a kind of an importance. Not the importance where we want to keep it, but an importance that this is something we want to address and work with and, um, and try to figure out a way to live that's better become wiser and freer and more compassionate in the process. And so the four foundations of mindfulness, you know, to learn to do that, you know, to learn to uh, be present in the body, you know, and hold it in the body. Let the body be the, the container, let the body be the temple that holds the suffering we have. To learn how to breathe with suffering. Let uh, let the breathing be the compassionate presence that can breathe through and caress the suffering. To learn to be with the feeling tones, and and kind of, no matter how complicated the suffering is, kind of get a toehold on how to be present for it in a non-reactive way, by just notice, notice noticing how unpleasant it is, and being with the unpleasantness, noticing the state of mind that's present when we have suffering. It's the mind filled with greed or hate or confusion, doubt? Is the mind contracted? Is it expansive? Is the mind concentrated? Is it scattered? It's kind of how, how are you with it? And then the mind, sta- the, the dhammas, the fourth foundation, do the hindrances play a role? Is there attachment to the aggregates? What's the role to uh, identification, ideas of me, myself, and mine? How do they come into play? Um, can we bring some of the factors of awakening to the experience of our suffering so we can kind of learn to be present for it in a more direct, less reactive way? And so as we kind of deepen the mindfulness practice, and I think over time, what we learn is to be less and less reactive or uh, judgmental or, or co- maybe you could just say it complicated with suffering. And what we're looking for, I believe, is, is um, I don't know if there's a right expression, but uncomplicated suffering. Good old, straightforward, uncomplicated suffering. Meaning that we don't add a lot of complications to it. We don't add our reactivity and all this stuff, you know. But we kind of just, you know, let it be there. And, and, uh, and then learn to approach it as an appropriate field, appropriate object, appropriate condition for the deepening of the practice, for the opening of the path of practice as we go forward. So the mindfulness practice brings us to a place where we hopefully at some point, maybe not this year or next year, but some point where we have a a kind of a dignified, upright um, strength of being willing to stand and be present for dukkha, whatever it might be. And that ability to just sit there, be very simple presence with our suffering, uh, gives birth to the ability to practice with it and look deeper and, and to let it grow further. And so some of you, you all know, I think about the noble, Four Noble Truths. And this word noble, I think is a, an you know, evocative word when I think of it, I think of uh, it evokes in me a sense of dignity and a sense of value and respect, maybe even a little bit of reverence because of how much it's used in Buddhism. And, um, and so uh, at some point, depending on how we relate to the suffering, we can understand the suffering becomes noble suffering or ennobling suffering. 
in saying that, I'm not justifying the suffering or celebrating the suffering or saying, you know, have more of it. But uh, noble suffering means that you begin seeing the suffering through the lens of, an, of this maturity, of a willingness to stay and be present and not be swept away in the stories or the reactivity we have. But we're just there to see it and be with it. And then we shine the light of awareness on it. So this idea that there's two different ways. You can have suffering that stays in the dark, and some people's suffering is really in the dark. They're kind of hidden away for a long time. And sometimes part of the function of retreats like this is to bring it out of the dark. And sometimes on retreat, people think that they're going backwards in their spiritual life because they were all, you know, happy and light and ordinary life, and they come to retreat and boom, something came out of the dark. And so we kept them, we had to, but that's actually quite healthy. So sooner or later it had to. So the analogy I like to use is, um, I used to be a farmer, used to work in greenhouses. And, um, and so uh, if you take a greenhouse, you know, the glass greenhouse, and um, you um, have a curtain that, that, knock, that uh, blocks all the sunlight from going in. Because it's a glass, the curtain's on the inside, it still gets hot in there, hot and humid, but there's no light coming in. And, um, and so what grows is not the plants that you want to grow. What grows is like mold, lots of mold black mold and green mold and blue mold and <laughs> phosphorescent mold and, you know, just like kind of mold. You don't even touch it. Ugh. Because it's dark. But now it can just warmth and moist. It's, mold loves it. But um, if you pull the curtains from the greenhouse, um, then uh, and the sun comes in, then the mold dries out and fades away, does what mold does when it fades away. And, um, and instead, the plants you have growing there, maybe you planted seeds, and they have a chance to finally sprout. Some plants only sprout seeds, or they, sp they, 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 sp they sprout best if there's sunlight on it. And uh, you know, it penetrates the top of the soil. And then, you know, and then they start growing in a healthy way, those plants. And who knows, you might have all kinds of beautiful flowers and plants that can grow in that sunlight. So the same with our life. If we um, uh, leave our wonderful, moist, warm human heart or body or inner life in the dark, guess what grows? The equivalent of mold. But if you can shine the light of awareness on your, on your life, it creates a different condition and then allows things to sprout, to germinate, to grow. And, um, and you know, beautiful things can grow in there. We had the seeds within us for tremendous uh, good qualities, seeds of compassion, seeds of generosity, seeds of honesty, of kindness, virtue, respect, all kinds of things are wisdom that can grow in there. And but what it really takes is the light of awareness. So darkness is a condition for one thing to grow and light is a condition for something else to grow. The, the Buddha, in the Buddha's language, he did not use the English word practice. It's a strange word that we use in our Buddhist scene here. And I think it's about uh, Robert Thurman who said he got tired of all these Buddhists saying they're practicing all the time, practicing, practicing, practicing. And he said, when's the performance? <laughs> And I think he was, uh, had this idea that, I think he had the idea that, you know, that they were always kind of, you know, 
retreating <laughs> from the world. They're going, you know, as opposed to living their practice in some active, active living their, their dharma. Maybe he meant that. So the Buddha didn't use the word practice. The word that we sometimes translate as practice is bhavana. And bhavana literally means to cultivate or to grow something. And that, in my mind, it's, or maybe my heart, it has a very different feeling to say I'm cultivating something. I'm going up to the meditation hall to practice. Okay. I'm going up to the meditation hall to cultivate something. That's a very different feeling. What are you going to cultivate today? We say, you come in, the teacher says, what are you practicing? Let us tell you about the practice. And it like, seems like a technique. You know, I could do this technique, da-da-da. But if we say, what are you cultivating? That's a very different uh, perspective to understand what you're doing. What are you cultivating? In a sense, what we talked about this last week, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, those are practices. What we're talking about now for the next days, the 12 steps of transcendent dependent arising, dependent liberation, is, um, um, are things that are being cultivated, things that we're growing. So we're, uh, we're not growing suffering, but we're growing noble suffering by how we relate to it. And that's a condition for the growth of faith, which is a condition for the growth of gladness, which is a condition for the growth of joy, which is a condition for the growth of tranquility, which is a condition for the growth of happiness, which is a condition that supports the growth of concentration which is a condition for the growth of seeing things as they are, which is a condition for becoming disenchanted, breaking the spell or the trance, which is a condition for uh, dispassion, which is a condition for liberation, which is a condition for knowing you're liberated. What we're gonna talk about these next days are not practices, but they are qualities of heart or mind, conditions that can, uh, that can be cultivated, that can be, that, uh, qualities that can be grown and cultivated and cared for and tended to. And, and the way we do that, and the way the Buddha talked about it, is you don't do it. You don't sit down and say, okay, I'm gonna be glad. Let's get really serious here. Joy is important. <laughs> uh, but you create the conditions that dharma willing allows a joy to arise. And this idea of dharma willing, you, you know, we, 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 put in, we put in place the conditions that hopefully begin setting in motion the, the growth of something in our greenhouse. And there's many things that can grow. Uh, what's interesting about this list is that um, the Buddha had a, frequently had a very clear idea of a certain growth and development of what happens to human beings as they engage in the path to liberation. And probably the most common way that he talked about these steps that lead to liberation is, um, is a subset of these 12, right in the middle. Gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. And when he describes how these work together, um, he says things like, when there's faith, it's natural. He uses the word natural. It's natural for uh, gladness to arise. When there's gladness, it's natural that joy should arise. When there's joy, it's natural that the body becomes tranquil. When the body becomes tranquil, it's natural that, um, that uh, we become happy. And when we're happy, it's natural that we become concentrated. It's kind of phenomenal that he has this idea. And for some of us, you know, it seems like, well, it can't be, it can't be real. How does this work? Um, but uh, there seems to be a kind of a natural unfolding. And um, part of the language that he uses, he says, um, um, even if a person has no intention for gladness. 
if they have faith, it's natural that faith should that gladness should arise. And then an analogy he used, very interesting analogy he used, if this kind of cultivating and tending and nurturing and allowing things to kind of take their time to grow and develop, is um, a chicken sitting on her eggs. And the Buddha said, um, as long as the chicken sits on her eggs, even if she does not want the eggs to hatch, they will hatch. In the same way, if you sit on your liberation eggs, even if you don't want to be liberated, you will. That's kind of amazing. You put the condition, if you put the conditions in place, you can even say, no way, <laughs> not today. But if all the conditions are there, you will be liberated. You don't even have to want it. It's kind of radical, I think. So this is all a way of emphasizing how much conditionality is important in teachings of the Buddha. That we're putting together conditions and then Dharma willing. And if you remember the first evening that I talked here, I talked about, you know, that there's two sides to practice. There's, we do the practice and then we get practiced. You know, that the, we're on the receiving end of this as well. So we don't want to take too much responsibility. And that's why the idea of cultivating is nice. The Buddha also had the analogy of a farmer growing, growing crops. And the farmer can only, you know, plant the seeds and tend the crops, water them, fertilize them, keep the weeds out. But the farmer doesn't cause the plants to grow. The farmer creates the right conditions for it. And so that's what we're doing here, is creating the right conditions. And so it's a, to be the, be the farmer, the gardener, the caretaker, the tender of ourselves, of our hearts, is a, uh, is a big part of this whole process, which sometimes it gets lost when the practice of mindfulness seems like it's a technique. If I just do this technique, then, uh, you know, you know, I have to do it, line it up just right, and, you know, and then, somehow push the right button and I'll be happy ever after. Um, that's a very, you know, doing that, you know, kind of maybe being assertive, thinking's up to you, being in control, I'm going to do this, is very different than, you know, kind of a, I'm just here to do the best I can to create the right conditions, to offer myself, offer my heart, offer my sincerity to this situation and put to, you know try to put these conditions in place and be a, a vesicle a vessel for the seeds to germinate for the plants to grow and let's see what happens when that happens when that goes on so um, so it begins so this uh, list of liberative dependent arising begins with um, suffering. And it's said that um, there's a kind of Buddhist lore slogan that says that, um, um, I don't know if it's really true, but it's, it's what it says, that um, everyone begins the path of practice with suffering, with some distress, some stress, some dis unease, some thing that feels off or wrong or dissatisfying or unsatisfying or um, it's you know, and I kind of like that little slogan because it kind of, for me, lends a kind of a common commonality that we all have, and it kind of it's very tender for me the fact that the idea that maybe everyone I encounter on the path is here because of suffering, and there's a wide range, you know, and the the, the amount of suffering in this world is just astounding, and so, and the amount of suffering that we collectively have here together is astounding. Uh, our life experience and experiences of our families and people and communities and there's so much that comes in here and this is a place for it. This is a place to be a caretaker for the suffering that we have as individuals, we have as a society collectively and to be able to kind of hold it and be with it. And I think it's a tremendous gift to our world that there's a place and a and, if, and people who are willing to, um, you know, turn 
moldy suffering into noble suffering, into the kind of suffering that can be used for liberation and, and then eventually freedom from suffering, liberation from suffering. And um, so then, you know, it means getting to know our suffering, <clears throat> getting to understand it. And, you know, Philip the other day gave a very nice talk about, you know, that the hindrances, the task is to get to know them. It's not a mistake to have them. It's, they're the subject of practice. And in fact, if you go back and look at the ancient teachings of the Buddha, when he defined wisdom, defined in a variety of ways, but the earliest kind of ways in which a person was wise, a wise person was someone who um, understood how they got in trouble. They understand how they get caught up in suffering. As opposed to wise about, you know, cosmic consciousness and some great, you know, metaphysical principles of the universe, um, great truths, um, there's this very human, down-to-earth, practicality of understanding how we get caught up, how we get, how we add to our suffering, how we, you know, put the conditions in place for our suffering. So we stop and look at suffering. What is it? What's the nature of the suffering that we have? Sometimes, the Buddha said, people suffer because <clears throat> uh, they're with things which are not pleasing things which are uncomfortable. Sometimes people suffer because they're not with the things which are pleasing, not with the things which are dear to them and that they like. Sometimes people suffer because <clears throat> um, they don't get what they want. Sometimes they suffer because they get what they want. Sometimes they suffer because they get what they don't want. Sometimes we suffer because we have expectations. Sometimes we have suffering because we have um, deep wounds within. We've been hurt deeply in our lives. And I would, I would suggest that the deep hurts that we have <clears throat> don't really qualify as suffering in the Buddhist dictionary. You know, if they make a Buddhist English dictionary, then, um, you know, you have to make a, the suffering would have a very particular meaning. And a deep sense of hurt wouldn't necessarily be suffering. But we could add suffering on top of it. We can contract, we can resist, we can identify with it in a certain way, where then uh, there's, um, there's a brittleness or a hardness or, a, you know, or anxiety or angst that was added to it. People suffer around their identity. Not required to suffer around identity, but it's <clears throat> all kinds of you know, ways in which we define ourselves. And then the world is not, somehow the world didn't get the message. And so it doesn't cooperate in the way that we hope. And so then we run into friction and challenges. And, or it isn't that the world doesn't cooperate with how we want to define ourselves but we don't cooperate with it. You know, I'm supposed to be a blissfully kind, wonderful, wise Dharma teacher. Thank you. <laughs> and you know, if, if that's my identity, you know, what happens when I'm not? I don't cooperate with my identity sometimes. And so, you know, you know, I better get on with the program, try harder. Or not be attached to whatever self-defining idea that I have, and rather than being caught with the definition of what I think I should be, look at the suffering. Oh, ouch, there's stress here, there's tension. How I'm holding it. What I'm expecting of myself. Is there a different way? How can I, what can I learn about this? You know, there are so many different forms of suffering, so many different forms of which we are distressed by our lives and uneasy. And, and it's very motivating. And I would say that, the, that the, you know, really the reason I'm sitting here, the reason I've ended up in this kind of work is I made a decision 
1982, very clear that, that my life was going to be, it wasn't, it wasn't a decision, well, it was kind of a decision, but it wasn't like I made the decision. Uh, my heart knew, or just that's what was true. It was more like that. I recognized what was true. And what was true is this heart was, was about meeting and responding to the suffering of the world. And that's what I was going to be, spend my life doing. I didn't know what, the, I didn't know what, what that meant or what form it was going to take, but that became the organizing principle for my life. And I'm, you know, I'm, I have no regrets for that. So sometimes it's kind of tiring. And, um, and so this idea of, of um, you know, I, I tell you that example as an example of, an example of one person whose encounter with suffering transformed him into a lifetime of how to live. That suffering didn't weigh me down, it didn't crush me, it didn't, you know, I didn't run away from, it didn't make me anxious. It made me want to step into the world in a new way. That encounter with suffering. Suffering is a phenomenally important part of human life. It's very unfortunate that's the case. And I don't want to glorify it at all. It's heartbreaking. But there is a way of making that suffering noble or making yourself noble, dignified, by how you're willing to sit with it and breathe with it and hold it and look at it. Pull the curtains from the greenhouses of your heart and let the light of awareness look at it. What I like about this analogy of the greenhouse and the light is that when the light shines on the greenhouse, The light makes no judgments about what it sees. The light doesn't contract, doesn't look the other way, it doesn't attack. You know, it just just kind of shines equally on the mold and on the plants. It doesn't matter. Light doesn't care if it lands on the mold or it lands on the the beautiful flowers. It just lands there. So the light of awareness can be the same way. and for the <clears throat> and there's something about this kind of non-evaluative, non-reactive willingness just to be present and look at something. It's a condition that allows something else to happen. It, set, it sets in motion a different path than if the light doesn't shine into the into the heart. So we're trying to put together conditions. So here are some conditions that we tried our best to put in place. Like what I just talked about, mindfulness. A sense of stability and uprightness in the midst of it, whatever's happening. We're trying to set in place a modicum of kindness and compassion. Create conditions for, we're trying to create a condition of giving ourselves lots of time because the inner spiritual life is not an efficient process. <laughs> you probably know this, maybe you know the story of um, the Dalai Lama, in a huge auditorium, maybe in Arizona, and someone stood up and said, um, what's the fastest way to enlightenment? And the Dalai Lama stood there, apparently for many, many minutes, silently on the podium, <laughs> without answering, which, and, and then, he started crying because it was, for him it was a very sad question. Like that's, what, that's what was important, you know, to, as fast as you can. Um, you know, but to give time. It's a generous thing to be generous to yourself. So there's a, a wonderful story that a friend of mine, who was a priest in San Francisco Zen Center, he knew the founder of Zen Center named Suzuki Roshi. And uh, he asked the Zen master, um, if, uh, if I practice Zen, will I become enlightened? And Suzuki Roshi said, 
if your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. Is almost as good good enough for you? Is it good enough? So the idea of sincerity, bringing sincerity to what you're doing. So these are, you know, and so like coming to a retreat like this, the hope is that the, this kind of artificial event that we created here, um, the silence, the schedule, the instructions, the community, you know, zafus, all these things, you know, that, that um, we're putting together certain conditions that we're hoping allows for the, something to be cultivated, something to be tended in your, the garden of your heart, the optimal conditions for something to grow and develop. It's a very special, this condition, it's phenomenally special, this kind of con- condition that we have here. It's very rare to find it anywhere in the world. Even sometimes in Asia, it's hard to find how pristine the conditions are that are here in place at Spirit Rock. And sometimes maybe we're too protective of it, but, um, which is not a good condition to be too protective. But, but, um, but there, you know, so we put together you know, physical conditions, we try to put together psychological, emotional you know, conditions, our sincerity, our openness, our willingness, perhaps our faith, perhaps our love for what we're doing, perhaps our inspiration, perhaps our sense that uh, our understanding that what we do here, we don't just do for ourselves. We do it for the world, really. We do it for others. I don't think you can get very far in this practice if you're only doing it for yourself. I think to really take this practice as far as it really can go, most people, are, the motivation to do it for the sake of others as well is really important. To create a, help create a better, better world in a world that's so full of suffering. So we put the conditions in. And then this openness, this allowance, this silence, this stillness, this receptivity, this giving of time, giving of mindful time, giving of temporal mindfulness, just, just, you know, and so that something can begin to grow, because we're cultivating something, we're developing something come and fill us and grow and become strong. And we have a path of practice. We have a path to walk. We don't have just suffering. We have suffering and a path. We have suffering and practices. We have suffering and understanding and wisdom. We have suffering and we have um, the conditions we know we can start putting into place. We have suffering and we have a community to support us as we kind of try to engage in what's often very difficult. We have suffering and we have um, opportunity. We have an opportunity that few people have in this world of ours. Some people would say that it's certainly very rare, this opportunity. Some people would say it's a huge privilege to have this opportunity. We have our suffering and we have a whole other context for it that makes the suffering into something different than what it is in the complicated world of people who have no contact with practice and Dharma and, or something like that. So two roads diverge 
in a beating heart. And I forget how the poem goes next, but I took the less, I took the less, less traveled one and made all the difference. And if you, chances are, if you take a less traveled one, because very few people travel it, it will make all the difference to yourself and your world. So I hope that uh, you feel the value and inspiration and or devotion or sincerity that, and dare I use the word faith, that now, that there can be a profound faith in the value that comes from having an approach to suffering that is transformative, that's liberating, and that supports you. That's a condition that'll keep allowing those plants to grow. And that's what Ruth will be discussing tomorrow. Sada. Dukkha and then Sada. Let's uh, sit quietly in the, in the midst of these conditions that we have here and see what arises. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.